Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. If you're listening to this episode, it turns out there's a pretty good chance you're from Australia. That country is one of the top five markets for listeners of Public Key. So this week, I'm bringing you some local market content. For the rest of us, this is a special look into the state of crypto in Australia. My guest is Caroline Bowler, the CEO of BTC Markets, the oldest and one of the most successful crypto exchanges in Australia. BTC Markets is also a Chainalysis customer. Caroline and I talk about how her experience in investment banking during the 2008 global financial crisis led her to appreciate the importance of crypto. She teaches me about the current regulatory situation in Australia and why she may be one of the biggest proponents of more regulation. And after the episode, if you're craving more content like this, then you'll definitely enjoy the Geography of Cryptocurrency Report. You can find the link in the show notes. Today, we've got a special episode from Down Under. I'm joined by the CEO of BTC Markets, Caroline Bowler. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Caroline, great to have you on the show. You know, people may not realize this, but Australia is actually the third biggest audience that we have listening to the podcast behind the US and the UK. Wow. Uh, You've probably got some users and some fans that will hear this podcast. It doesn't surprise me. The Australians seem to have really embraced the world of podcasts uh, in a way that I haven't seen anywhere else in the world. So I'm not surprised. And good on them. Good day, everybody. Yeah, that's right. Hopefully we'll get a few more listeners after having an Australian, uh, <laughs> someone living in Australia, but you're not an Australian native uh, or by birth, rather, you're Irish. We'll get into that. But I thought actually we would start with when did you get into crypto and how how did you end up becoming CEO of BTC Markets? A bit of a story. So before I got into crypto, I worked in traditional finance and was in the banking system. Actually worked for a stockbroker, then worked for an investment bank and moved with that investment bank to Singapore and uh, was there for the GFC and really had a front row seat to, you know, lots of the convulsions within the financial services system. Anyway, I left banking and set up a communications agency in Singapore, looking originally at fintech and then crypto blockchain companies. So that was back in about 2014. So I've been knocking around crypto since about that point in time. I can remember meeting Vitalik from co-founder of Ethereum in Singapore back in, I don't know, must have been 2014, 2015, some point in time. So before Ethereum even launched or right right around the launch? Yeah, it was very new, incredibly new and very nice person. There's you know, nothing you can say about that. But I can remember at the time thinking, oh, this is really something. Like This is more than just... I suppose at the time there was a lot of the hype and the blips and the, you know the price movements and it was all Bitcoin and criminals and Russian gangsters and all the rest of it. Uh, no, the narrative that still persists, but you could really see even then where this was going and what the opportunity was going to be. And I'm here ever since. That's amazing. So even at the first meeting of Vitalik, in that moment of you know the Silk Road and Mt. Gox and all the stuff happening in Bitcoin around 2013, 2014, your first impression was like, wow, I want to get into this. Oh, you could just see, like coming from traditional finance and you saw what they were trying to build. I mean, it's the age old thing of, I like blockchain, block crypto. <laughs> but, um, but I like both. Yeah. I like both. Yeah. And I could see that blockchain could really change the way the operational world of traditional finance worked. You know, instant settlement, cross-border payments, etc. So that piece was very obvious to me. And so, I don't know, I, I guess I just was in those rooms and the energy that was amongst those people that's so bloody smart. 
And you're kind of going, there can't be this many clever clogs all into one sector and for it not to go places. And I just want to attach myself into this and be a part of it because it was so thrilling and exciting. And I think too, it's also partially got to do with the energy that is in Singapore. And it, Singapore is such an entrepreneurial place. And it, you know, it really is that sense of it's built to, or it allows you to build companies and tries to make it as easy as possible to do so. And that they're very embracing of, uh, in a very pragmatic way around innovation. All those kind of little different kind of energies were kind of bubbling around and yeah and so I, I kind of wandered into crypto and haven't left yet so all good and so how did you go from running a communications agency meeting Vitalik to now CEO of BTC Markets and you've been there about two years right I think if I was reading your CV correctly it'd be three years at the end of January so BTC Markets were one of my clients I had grown the business from Singapore into Melbourne kind of to do other different I had a couple of Aussie clients and BTC Markets were one of them and so when I grew the business and sold that business and moved permanently to Melbourne and kept in touch with the team. And they approached me towards the end of 2008, 2019. Who can remember dates anymore? With <laughs> COVID years and lockdowns. Anyway, they approached me towards the end of the year and said, would I be interested in joining? And we had a conversation and it started in January. And then six weeks later, we went into our first lockdown in Melbourne. So it's been a wild ride. Hopefully you got to meet the team before you went into lockdown in person or was it all virtual? Not all of them. And that was that was the funny bit is that you're trying to, I suppose as well, like get to know them, then get to know you. You're making changes. You're trying to hire. We got into, you know, pretty much, you know, six months in or not even six months in, in a few months in, we went into the bowl and it was like, oh God, lads, like just hold on to your life as we go through this experience. And and it's been, it's been really fun and also really hard, but in a good way, in a really good way. No, I, I can totally relate. I joined Chain analysis in January of last year. So it was the same thing. I didn't meet anybody in person in my interview circuit. And, you know, and we've grown the company, you know, from about 200 people to over 800 in the last 20 months. And so it's, I can imagine it must have been even harder in your position as, as new CEO. People listening from around the world may not be familiar with BTC Markets since you're primarily, I think, operating in Australia. Tell us a little bit about it. I was fascinated at the kind of long history. And so, you know, in our industry, 18 months, two years is tenured. But you've, uh, BTC Markets has been at this for a long, long time. Yeah. So this is, we're in our ninth year, nine and a half years now we've been around. So uh, yeah, we are OGs. <laughs> the two founders of the business come from a development and an IT background, right? So they are technologists at heart. And I think that really shaped how the business has grown. The way we've looked at it has been a technology first, you know, what's the most exciting thing that we can do to, from a development point of view, as opposed to perhaps at the time, it was more of an, an idea of Lambos and wildly exciting kind of risky business. And that just wasn't really what the founders have been about. And that kind of ethos then is reflected in our client base. Um, right now, we're solely in Australia and our client base are mostly, well, they obviously mostly young men aged between 25 and 45. They're mostly based on the East Coast, usually around middle management, earning about 100K a year. That seems to be a, a client base. And we also had a lot of um, people from financial services join our join our company, uh, join as clients of our platform. And the reason for that is, I think, they looked at how it was built and went, okay, this feels a lot like the risk and compliance and the stability stuff that we have seen in traditional finance spill over. Now, that was 
that that was the DNA of the business. And so it was a very easy fit then for me to come in from TradFi and move into this company because I'm going, okay, cool. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. They've always had AML and KYC. They've always kind of been you know, compliant and so on. And so really, really easy for us, you know, to kind of transition to the different regulatory cycles. And and that's something that we've kind of kept going. I mean, even I know this, this really appeals to probably a very niche, niche piece of your audience, but we went for ISO certification with ISO certification a couple of years ago and we're going for our SOC 2 compliance, which means very little to people outside of financial services. It's a big deal though. Really hard to get. I think there's only about 20 companies, if even in the world, in, in crypto that have it. And we, we want to get it because we want to raise the bar and show that there are businesses within our sector who are here for the long term, building for the long term, recognize like what needs the frameworks that need to come into place, as well as doing all the cool, sexy, fun stuff, all the DeFi and the DAO and NFTs and all that cool stuff. You also just have to get the underpinnings right. Yeah, so we've been bopping around since, yeah, since 2013 and gone through so many market cycles. It's been fun. And I was they were talking to me recently, like newer members of the team. And you know, I was saying to them, like, I'm not overly concerned about this, about this bear market. I, you you know, we've seen this come before, we've planned for it, like we knew it was the inevitability of it. So we're not too worried about it. Um, and I think that's probably true for anyone who's been around for a couple of market cycles. Like, yeah, no, we know how this plays out. We know how this one works. It's definitely my first run through one of these market cycles. And so I, I look to my colleagues, like Chainalysis co-founders, you know, Michael Groninger, Jonathan Levin. They, I'm like, wow, this is a little concerning today, guys. And they looked at me and they're like, oh, you've you haven't seen anything. Calm down. This is just, you're, we're going to be just fine. I'm right there with some of your newer employees. I picked up actually, look, I was playing around with the platform website earlier. And I think you may be the only one that I've ever seen that has a link to developer documentation, like right in the, the top level nav on the site. And I was immediately in the docs. I was like, oh, okay, there's some real technologists who are at work here who are, I think other exchanges have developer docs, some of them, but like they're not front and center, easy to find. So now you mentioned the connection to the founders coming in as, as technologists first and company founders second. It makes a ton of sense. It really is the center and the heart of the business is around our developing, as it should be. We've got a very large support team and so on, but it's the developers at the, at the heart of it. But then it's like our API, if I can brag a bit, like our API is kick-ass. We're really proud of the work we've done, that particular team of our size. Like we're, we're really pleased with our uptime. We're really pleased with, you know, the whole kit and caboodle around it, but we invest so much into it that we kind of want to see it stand on its own TV, really. I picked it up just looking at the documentation. I didn't like sit down and code anything up, you know, this afternoon as I was flying back from New Orleans. But it was definitely clear that there was thought put into the the docs, which is usually where you can see where things, uh, if you're not putting care into it, that's the first thing that falls down. So well done. The other thing that I picked up on that I, I'm fascinated by is I think people that have started in crypto in the 2012-2013 cycle tend to be the ones that are maybe most resistant to government oversight, to any sort of regulation. Like I, I have conversations with people that take the view of, you know, the entire point of cryptocurrency was to eliminate oversight of financial markets and allow, you know, direct interaction between individuals. So I think it's very unique given the age of the firm, the position that you took, which was like, hey, we've been compliant. We've had KYC from day one. And I think just reading some of the articles, like you're fairly active in in uh, the regulatory landscape, which is is terrific. Talk a little bit about that philosophy. 
Yeah, so, and you're dead right. It's very much at the core of the business. And the reason being is I think perhaps my own view is probably coming off the back of the GFC. And I'm in Singapore and I'm seeing the markets collapse and my parents are asleep in Ireland and I'm ringing my parents and I'm saying to my family get your money out of the banks when it opens they may not still be standing get your money out of the banks and I even now can feel that fear in my chest it's just it was absolutely terrifying the time but and that has stayed with me that feeling of ordinary people being really badly let down by the very things that, was, that we're all, had been told to venerate and that they were going to look after you. And I think that that probably that aspect of it shapes everything I do within crypto because there's a because there's a big part of crypto then that is like we can give you a degree of self-reliance. You can make your own decisions. I mean, that's at the very core, again, a lot of the crypto philosophy. But where I probably diverge a bit more is because I think there needs to be controls around people's information and there needs to be a way of weeding out the rubbish that floats around in crypto. Some of the really super projects that people lose their money on and we've seen it time again, the pump and dumps, all of that kind of carry on. And then there's also, and this is rather kind of dry, I guess. <clears throat> the subject is quite dry too, actually. It happens to you. Issues around like where the cryptocurrency sits. So if you use an exchange versus a broker, like where does your cryptocurrency sit? Like where is it being held? Like what laws is it under? And that's not a problem until it's a problem. And then it's a really big problem. Because if you're in, say, in Australia and your crypto has been held in, I don't know, Bahamas, Malta, pick a country, Hong Kong, wherever, but you don't know that. And then you only find out when things go wrong and the wheels fall off. And then you've got to try and get legal recourse to that stuff. That's when laws are important. That's when all this stuff, regulation is important. And so it's that, that tight feeling in my chest of going, oh my God, the wheels are really falling off traditional finance and I've got to let my family in Ireland know get your money out this is not going to go well and that drives me then when I talk about regulation of cryptocurrency I just don't want to see those same mistakes happen again within this new economy that we're trying to build so as much as I can do you know as vocal as we can be that's what I try and do it's amazing I mean I, I kind of summarize it as we have to protect consumers and we have to give people a level of clarity about the risk that they're taking on like it in the U.S., we have this uh, sort of silly uh, accredited investor rule, which is meant to protect consumers. Like you have to certify that you have a certain amount of total net worth and liquid assets. At the heart of it, when it was created, it was like, hey, we don't want people who don't have money to lose investing in more risky things. And so it prevents a lot of people from doing things like buying shares in privately held companies. So you can't be an angel investor in a startup. But the effect of it has been blocking people from what may be totally reasonable investments and you know, well-educated, thoughtful people who are well-informed about the project. And it doesn't stop people from putting money into you know, the ridiculous Ponzi schemes, things that have nothing to do with crypto. And so I think one of the things that's always excited me about crypto is that self-determination you talked about, like the access to make your own choices about what you invest in. But at the same time, there has to be some level of consumer protection. Like you can't have completely unregulated people who are lying to steal your money operating without some recourse or penalty there. And the balance is, it's not an easy one. Like I don't have a wave the magic wand solution, but I think working toward that is what we've all got to get to. So I love your perspective. Yeah, I don't know that it's such a bad thing to have well thought through, progressive, proportionate 
regulation that's in there specifically not to limit behaviors but to prevent bad practice it's one of the points that we're trying to argue for here in australia is taking it as a principles-based approach like like in, if you, you become a doctor and you take the hippocratic oath first do no harm and i think that you can apply that to an industry level too and go okay Crypto is so innovative and new and we don't know where this is going and it's changing every day. But so instead of rather than trying to be prescriptive around what type of products and activities, instead just go, hey, you know, if you're going to have AML, KYC, you know, the data storage around that. Or if you're going to do the type of products that you're going to do, you got to explain why you're standing over those products. You know, what is it that you feel, you know, that kind of stuff. And then just take it from there and then see where it evolves. Because you darned if we can predict where this interest is going to be in three years, let alone five. And so it could end up that in regulation becomes redundant. Yeah, you don't you don't want to regulate out of existence a product that has yet to be invented by accident. That would be my my one piece of guidance to the policy experts. So you bring up a good point though. You know, many of the people listening probably unfamiliar with the Australian regulatory stance on crypto. I've been watching from afar and was actually surprised at some of the traditional finance. The four big banks in Australia have been talking a lot about crypto. Maybe give us a quick rundown of kind of what does the landscape look like from a, a regulatory standpoint? And then as a follow-up, we'll circle back. And I'm, I'm curious to hear how you're thinking about working with some of the big banks in the, in the market as they start to move into the space. From a regulation point of view, the industry had been clamoring for some kind of attention and help with regulation. When I came in, it was the single biggest, I think for me, critical factor that was going to inhibit the growth of the, our business, but also the sector in Australia. And so we, we really started agitating for regulation. And I can remember sitting on the stage of the ASX, which is our, the, kind of the national exchange, the largest exchange here in Australia. And sitting next to me was Senator Andrew Bragg, who at the time was the chair of a Senate committee into fintech in Australia. I also I think it was PayPal, MasterCard, and I remember who else was on this panel with me. And I turned to the senator and was like, please regulate me. And his reaction, he's like, this is the first time I have ever had. He's like, please, can you regulate me? And I explained to him, like, or to the wider audience, with the lack of regulation, the kind of behavior that I could potentially get away with, because there's nothing, there's very little to stop me. What is in place is like, you know, consumer protections with regards to competition, things like that. They exist to a degree, but nothing like what you'd expect in financial services exists in Australia currently. We do have AML KYC obligations, so we're registered with Austrack, that's all fine. Um, and so so every crypto, every registered DCU, digital currency exchange, has to collate usual identification documents, proof of address, and so on. So that's all standard and fair enough. But after that, there is nothing. It's an abyss. Now, to be fair to Senator Bragg, he took up the call to arms and very quickly himself and the rest of that committee engaged with the crypto industry in Australia and a broad range of stakeholders and put together a list of uh, recommendations even before the end of the year, which from a regulatory point of view, policy point of view, that's quick work, particularly considering the complexities that exist. They just deep dived into it and all kudos to them for the work that they did. One of the recommendations actually was that as a DC, as a digital currency exchange, I would have to register with Treasury, the Treasury Department, and then I would have to get a markets license in a similar fashion to a New York Stock Exchange or the ASX. So that was the kind of regime that they're heading down towards. And then we went into a new election cycle. And with that new election cycle, Senator Bragg's party were out of government and a new party have come in. Now, although the recommendations were from a cross-party committee, the current government are taking it in a more graduated approach. But they have worked with the Treasury Department to do more engagement with crypto community. And they're trying to figure out 
first off, they're trying to figure out a classification system around cryptocurrency. That's where they're starting from now to try and determine, is it a financial product? Which elements of it are financial products? And so on. And they're really, like, to be fair, some really engaging with the crypto community. Now, I, as I say, I'm on the board of Blockchain Australia myself, and there's, there's two reps for our sector on the board. And we've put out a call to arms to all of the CEOs of the DCEs or the major DCEs in Australia saying, guys, we have to get together on this. We've got to coalesce around a point of view. We may not agree on everything, but we'll agree on enough things that we can then put together a really strong position to treasury on this because you don't want it to be regulation by stealth. You know, you don't want to be kind of sitting back passively going, ah, oh, you know, common sense will see out. Unless you shout for it, there's no guarantee you're going to get anything. And goodness knows other voices are shouting quite loudly. So we have to come together as an industry to do that. But I think as I say, yes, if you can kind of come together around some of the main salient points and go from there, then you're on you're on to a winner. Just a question, Caroline, on the categorization in the US, we're having this debate right now between two financial regulators, the SEC and the CFTC. And there's sort of tug of war over is crypto a security or a commodity, which matters a lot in our market because you get a different regulatory authority. Is that what's happening in the categorization or is it more an assessment of like these things are, you know, at some levels of of risk or safety to actually trade legally? What's happening in that categorization process? So right now, as it stands, crypto is not considered a financial product in Australia. So I don't need any license to be a spot exchange. It's a very open market in that sense. If you want to do anything more than just do spot, then it flips into a financial product by the activity. So if it's you know considered a managed fund or considered uh, a derivative, for example, then different regulatory rules apply. But just spot doesn't matter. And what they're arguing about now, we're trying to classify now, is the actual type of token itself. So is Bitcoin a financial product? Is Ethereum a financial product? What type of, and if they're not a financial product, what type of product are they? What are they? What What is their classification? And that's been quite hot, hotly contested because as we know in crypto, like the nature of tokens flips and changes with some regularity and innovation and change is the very foundation of the sector. So it is quite a challenge. So I think perhaps rather than thinking as a, as a closed loop discussion, I think they should consider it to be quite an open-ended thing of, okay, well, we know what Bitcoin is. So let's just talk about Bitcoin and or Ethereum and something. You know what I mean? And going out from that point of view, because then, you know, there, there's the concern that they'll try and bring NFTs, for example, in as a financial product. And NFTs are not, in my view, are not financial products. There are many, many things. But financial products is, is not it. And one of the points I think that, you know, that I kind of raise is that there is a danger that when you're a hammer, everything is a nail. And I'm really trying to make sure that there is a nuance to, to all of this. And I even speak for the voice of the Australian retail, in particular, crypto investor. Like the behaviors that they're undertaking and how they view cryptocurrency, that needs to be part of the discussion. Like they don't necessarily view everything as a financial product in how in what they're doing and what they're buying. Like even if you flip from you know into into DeFi or you flip into NFTs, like you're changing from one cryptocurrency to another. Say for example, Bitcoin to Ethereum. That's not necessarily trying to do a financial flipping from one financial product to another. Instead, you're just trying to get access to decentralized finance and these are the steps you have to jump to get into it so then that and then that spills over into into tax law and all kinds of fun stuff there and we've got this amazing expert in australia called Joni pirowich who is fantastic on taxation and she's also a lawyer which helps as well tremendously and we're so so lucky to have such amazing smart people within our sector here in australia who are fighting the good fight both here and internationally to try and get some education and understanding around the complexities and the nuances that exist i sound like an episode of veep we're watching the I guess it's the episode where she keeps on going um that's nuanced and I know that's big for 
want to tell you, I just want to lie to you. So, <laughs> so I'm definitely not trying to do it. I'm not Selena Myers. <laughs> I would have never accused you of being Selena Myers. I'm, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm, I'm learning a lot here. Curious for your business, like depending on how this categorization goes, does that potentially rapidly expand the products that you offer? Like, do you start then offering derivatives potentially or direct on-ramps into, into DeFi from the centralized exchange? Can you stop reading my business model, please? Because that's pretty much exactly what excites me. So like, I've come from traditional finance. Yeah. I'm like, this is what I know to be true. This is what I'm familiar with, sort of comfortable with, what I know the opportunity, particularly when it comes to derivatives. And for us, so what we did, recognizing the lack of regulation, we decided, okay, we're going to go and get ourselves regulated. So we applied for an Australian financial services license under our sister company, BTCM Payments. And we're very lucky. It took us 17 months and we managed to come out the other side with a, an AFSL, Australian Financial Services License. But that was related to non-cash payments. So anything other than the dollar in your pocket is and that you use for payments is considered non-cash payments. And also was connected to basic deposit accounts because at the time we had a partnership with Vault Bank, Neo Bank, God rest them, but that later fell over. But we have that AFSL. So we can start building out from there the rest of the products that we have. And we're very proud of that AFSL. We're, as far as we know, we're the first in crypto land to have gone through that full process and receive one from the regulator through, again, to our sister company, not ourselves. And it's also not for crypto. They didn't license us for crypto trading. Just to get all those caveats in there. But given even like the challenges around debanking, given how cryptocurrency is viewed, to get any kind of recognition, to cross through those hurdles, to prove that we operate at really rigorously high standards was an act of trust from the regulator. I mean, don't get me wrong, they trust but verified us. 17 months of verification but we knew that it was going to be a process and we were very willing to participate in that process because we walk the talk that's awesome so we'll we'll look to the future when there's derivatives trading on the platform i also was reading about the partnership with ripple which i think is for payments can you talk a little bit about that i i wasn't totally sure i understood exactly everything that was in that so that was to do with our on-demand liquidity partnership with Ripple. So it was to do with cross-border payments. And the way it would work is regular Joe here would go into the 7-Eleven or whoever the partner were and say, okay, I've got a hundred Aussie dollar and I want to send it to my family in the Philippines. And so we'd hand over a hundred Aussie dollar and the guy would go, cool, this is how much in Filipino pesos they'll now get. And it's all pre-agreed and understood with incredibly low fees all the rest of it, and incredible speed. He would plug that into their the Ripple system. And what would happen, the BTC markets activity is we would facilitate the movement of the XRP from the Australian exchange over to the uh, Filipino exchange, where on the other side of it, then they would cash out into Filipino peso. And all of that would, would happen in moments. I mean, obviously it's, I think, is it microseconds or milliseconds? I can never remember which one it is. The really fast one. <laughs> they would send the XRP from us over to Philippines. And what I found actually with that partnership, when I explained to people who are crypto cautious, and I explained to them that very, very simple thing of using crypto for cross-border, and it's cheap, it's fast, it's super efficient, and it's outside of banking, it can happen 24-7. And that's a use case that people can really get their heads around very, very quickly around, oh, okay, so it's not all dodginess and stuff. I'm like, no, this is actually really helping people, particularly when you think about, so an economy like the Philippines, which is a, a strong part of it is funded by remittances from overseas workers, like this is a core part of it, and it's a story that's very familiar familiar with an Irish background as well of the importance of remittances coming out. Not so much now, but when I was younger yeah. and in previous generations, very much part of that. And the ability to send money quickly and 
efficiently and inexpensively and with transparency. Like this is amazing use cases for technology. I was talking with my my partner. He works. He's a regular job outside of cryptocurrency. A guy in his job. He's a little bit older than we are. His son was in actually in the US and needed. Might, had run out of money for whatever reason it was. I think it was probably a uni student who was having too much of a good time. And so they had to arrange to get money back over to the US on, on a weekend. Now, international bank transfers are a minimum of three days, really expensive and cumbersome in the US banking system. Let's not start there. And he used crypto. He opened up an account with BTC Markets. He sent XRP or whatever currency he sent from our exchange over to his son's account in the US. Happened in seconds. And the son then was able to cash out in US dollar. And for somebody who is kind of going, what's this crypto nonsense about? And then actually gets to use it and experience the benefit of it. It's a, it's an That's amazing. Moment. I love stories like that where it's, it has nothing to do with financial speculation. It's entirely practical and life impacting. We're hearing a lot about stable coins playing this function right now. The team at Circle just had a big conference in San Francisco where they made all sorts of announcements. And it seems like they're on a on a charge to really become the de facto payment tech in crypto, or at least one of them. How do you think about stable coins in both the Australian market generally and then specifically in your business? Like is that something that is important, necessary, widely used? Stablecoins, I think, are top priority for regulators worldwide for lots of reasons. I think that particularly from a US perspective, I'm not surprised that they are examining a CBDC in particular, given the role of the US dollar in international trade. And then the fact that private companies or private organizations are looking to issue stablecoins, very, very interesting from particularly from a US dollar point of view. If you're in a country where your your currency isn't considered to be so valuable, I can see why something like a, a private stablecoin has got a greater relevance here in australia aussie dollar you know is stable internationally recognized you can it's very very tradable i think the aussie us dollar pair is one of the most traded fx pairs in the world we don't have those issues we've got a great digital financial infrastructure you know it can be improved but i think it's quite a bit ahead of the us market and many markets around the world in terms of but the point being though is that there's still an interest and a use case being explored for stablecoins and CBDC. So we know that ANZ, as you already said, one of the big four banks launched their stablecoin earlier this year. And I know that they're looking to develop and do more with it. And I think that's what's really interesting too, is because you're going, ANZ are, are a well-known, well-trusted, they've been around you know, long, long enough, well-trusted financial institution in Australia and known, it's certainly regionally known, if not known in around the world, but certainly regionally well-known. And so for them, you, you believe them that what they say is true in terms of they say they've got the Aussie dollar in the account that they do. So then the functionality really opens up a stable coin as being that entry point into the world of the blockchain economy. So it's now like trade over your dollar, you get your stable coin dollar and now you can go into DeFi. Now you can go into NFTs and everything else that's going to come with it. I wouldn't even want to assume, you know, that we're going to find out, you know, what is to come and how we're going to start using these different currencies and these different platforms and formats. And particularly look at, say, cross-border trade and, you know, buying things online and so on. And I think that's probably why you can see the likes of MasterCard, PayPal, Visa payments is such an obvious use case for this. You can see why they're all coming in. So I think that stable coins, lots of exploration and experimentation still to go. I know that both Australia and Singapore regionally are looking at CBDCs. Singapore has got an even more advanced fintech system digital payments than you have here in Australia. And both of those uh, kind of the respective treasurers, chances, what have you, have come out and said, look, we don't yet see the use case for a CBDC in our respective jurisdictions, but we're exploring it. 
And I know that Singapore, for example, has, through the MAS, through the Monetary Authority of Singapore, have put money into co-designing. One of the first one actually was with JP Morgan as well, and other one of the national banks in Singapore, a cross-border use case for international trade using a CBDC. All very dry and boring, I can appreciate, when you're outside of the, outside of the zone. But when you're in it and you're watching these fundamental shifts happen to your financial services system in your lifetime, and you're a part of this, even a tiny little cog, it's the most thrilling thing in the world. It's amazing. Particularly as I say, yeah, when you come off the back of like sitting there looking at the GFC and everything is falling down around you in tatters and how it's and on the back of that, we've come out on the other side of it and how we're reimagining. And, you know, and everyone's kind of saying, oh, change takes too long and, and it's never going to happen. But it is, it is, it's happening around us and, and we just aren't aware because obviously there's so many other bigger stories that are happening and, and dominating our lives. But then, you know, COVID has, has done us a solid, pushed us all digitally first, whether you like it or not. I'm sure it's the same over the States as it was here. Absolutely. I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., and you're in Melbourne, Australia, and we're doing a podcast together. That might not have happened a couple of years ago. Circling back to the banks, I mean, the, the news that we're seeing about Australia is it seems like all of the four big banks are getting into crypto in some way. Some are doing it maybe more on the institutional side, some maybe with a more of a retail focus. How does that relate to your business? Are they partners? Are they potential competitors down the road? Is Are they both? I think they're both. Hmm. And I think it's thrilling. Yeah. And, and I'm excited about it. I'm so thrilled. I think they're going to be competitors. I think they're going to be peers. I think they're going to be clients. I think all of the good things about the involvement. I don't think that crypto is about staying in your lane. I don't think it should be about, oh, you're, you went in crypto 10 years ago. You're not cool enough to be an iGang. Like, I don't think that way about it at all. And I think that these are the involvement of banks do in Australia anyway, is they take it mainstream. They take the scariness out of it. They take the, the conversations around, oh, it's all a scam. And, and they make it safe and people feel like it's accessible. Ultimately, I mean, I think too, if they had a crystal ball they could gaze into, they would look at what's happening in decentralized finance. Right now, the name is a bit clunky, but they're looking at having a DeFi and going, soon enough, people are going to start doing their own thing when it comes to managing their own finances. Not everybody, but people are. Maybe they want to be a part of that or at least you know, a gateway into that world and be seen to be a part of it. You just don't want to be innovated out of existence and not to have done anything to be involved in. Kudos to the banks here. You know, They're taking that step and they're, they're pushing forward with it. It's going to be fun to watch over the next couple of years. Caroline, maybe last question for you. And this is as a marketing professional to another former marketing professional, some of the communications background. I'm often noticing how people who are new to crypto or come from other backgrounds, even traditional finance, are kind of thrown off by the jargon and the terms. Somebody was asking me about soulbound tokens the other day. And, you know, it was just like, what is that? And why, why are we having a conversation on this topic? If you could wave a wand, and sort of reset some of the narrative in the cryptocurrency ecosystem, like which would be the things that you would change first? I would change the historical connection to scams. I would dilute that narrative. You know, working for Chainalysis, and I know as a client of Chainalysis, exactly how capable the crypto industry is at winnowing out bad players in terms of letting them come through to exchanges, the ability that we have to really minimize that threat. But the narrative that persisted from the early days was that this, this Wild West, oh my God, if I hear it one more time. It's not the Wild West. It really isn't. But it's an easy, quick, dismissive, I, I don't need to bother engaging with it because I can just write it all off. So if I can change it, that's, that's what I would change. Getting into DeFi, getting into a lot of other than just the pure basic spot trading is clunky. Like the UI UX is 
pretty mediocre at best and really off-putting for some. So I think that's the next shoe to drop. Like once once that kind of gets its act together, we're going to see make it much more accessible and understood. But here's the thing, hey, most people don't give a crap about that stuff. They just want the outcome. And I think that the industry stops being so introspective and stop looking and talking to itself about how great it is and instead goes, oh crap, we have a responsibility to take this message outwardly facing and face the public going, I don't understand what you're talking about, mate. And then having to really work on that, that's the point of maturing that the industry needs to go to. It's still too introspective. It's still too inward facing. And I can see there's been a big change, particularly amongst the CEOs, of the bigger exchanges. I can see they're really pushing themselves out, but we really got to take it out to the masses and take it out and learn from that and learn from, as you know, and I know when you're trying to communicate a message, it's if you can turn around to your mother and go, do you understand what that sentence means? And if she says no, you're like, right, back to the drawing boards. Off we go. <laughs> my, my my other test is my kids who are fond of saying that dad works in imaginary money. And, <laughs> and, and my response to them is, wait till you find out that all money is imaginary and their eyes get as big as saucers. And they're like, what does that mean? <laughs> That's fantastic. And you're like, here, history of money, read that. (laughs) That's right. I've got the book waiting for them on the shelf behind me. Caroline, this was such a fun conversation. We could go on all night, but thank you for joining the podcast and, uh, and educating all our listeners about what's happening in Australia and BTC markets. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review or better yet, send me a message on Twitter. I'm at Ian Andrews DC, or you can message the at Chainalysis handle and let us know what you think. A couple months ago, I interviewed the Deputy Minister of Digital Transformation for Ukraine, Alex Bornyakov, and something he said during that podcast has stuck with me ever since. We want to show that we're not just fighting the enemy, we're also building our future. So the team here created an amazing video highlighting the work happening to build the future of Ukraine, and you can find a link in the show notes. Please take a moment, watch, share, so that we can keep a spotlight on what's happening in the country and we can support our friends and colleagues in their fight against Russia. Thank you.